So this is the South Rose window in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And uh, this stunning display of stained glass, in terms of stained glass windows, is considered one of the world's masterpieces. Uh, the South Rose window is made up of 84 panes of glass that are uh, uh, arranged in four different circles. The first circle contains 12 medallions, the second circle uh, 24 medallions, the third circle is made up of what are called quadrilobes, and then this fourth circle is made up of 24 trilobes. Now the various scenes depicted in all 84 uh, uh, panes of glass that make up the south rose window uh, depict angels and martyred saints and the twelve apostles and scenes from Matthew's Gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ all coming together to depict the New Testament. Now since its first uh, construction in 1260 A.D., the south rose window has been damaged and renovated many times, but it is believed that originally the the center medallion contained this picture of Jesus in all His majesty. And you can just see from looking at the South Rose window that the craftsmen that arranged and executed this thing just did so with real intentionality and skill and care. The point is that the South Rose window is the skillfully crafted stained glass that comes together to provide this beautiful picture of Jesus and His kingdom. Luke's Gospel is a lot like the South Rose window. New Testament scholar Sean McDonough, when referencing Luke's Gospel, often says that if the Gospel of Luke is a window through which we see Jesus, then it is this masterfully crafted, beautifully arranged stained glass window constructed with skill and care by Luke as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that is exactly what we've seen so far in our time in this book. This beautifully told, this expertly fashioned account of the most important, amazing story in all of human history. So far, the most uh, momentous event ever has taken place. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, has been born. All of the Old Testament has been anticipating God delivering His people from sin and the, and the Deliverer, the Redeemer, has been born incarnate. Luke now undertakes this task of describing Jesus' time on earth and in crafting this beautiful stained glass window of Jesus' life. Luke covers 12 years of Jesus' young life on earth from chapter 2, verse 22, all the way to the end of the chapter. That's only 31 verses to cover 12 years. These are episodes that he uncovered while interviewing eyewitnesses. They are unique to Luke's Gospel. And over the next two weeks, we are going to work through these 12 years of Jesus' life through the rest of chapter 2. And we will be looking through Luke's window and we will find that these accounts are so strategically and masterfully arranged so that in the end, we will see this magnificent vision of Jesus, His identity, His ministry, and of His kingdom. So we're going to begin today by looking at the earliest of those two accounts in chapter 2 and the picture of Jesus and His kingdom that Luke is going to provide for us further reveals to us that this baby Jesus is in fact the Savior sent from God. So this early encounter further reveals that Jesus is the Savior sent from God. But Luke has already made that clear 
already throughout chapter 1 and chapter 2, but here he's going to continue to nuance with greater depth exactly what that means. What it means that Jesus is our Savior. And he does so by communicating uh, the salvific work of Jesus Christ within a specific context that we see given for us in verses 22 to 24. So look at chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be starting in verse 22. Looking all the way to verse 24. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So these verses are important to us for a couple of contextual reasons. The first is that they show us just how pious and holy uh, Mary and Joseph are. And their piousness is obvious by how serious they are about keeping the law. Even in just those couple of verses, we see that they are keeping two explicit ceremonies and one implicit ceremony. The first explicit ceremony is the purification according to the law. Verse 22, when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. Now this purification is primarily related to Mary. You see, she just had a baby. She gave birth, and after giving birth, she would have been considered unclean for seven days, uh, at the end of which the baby Jesus would have been circumcised, which we see took place earlier in chapter 2. And then Mary would have entered this second tier of uncleanness. Uh, the second tier, sort of lesser stage of uncleanness. And at the end of those 40 days, they would go and give a sacrifice so that she would once again be considered fully pure. That's actually the, the sacrifice we see mentioned in verse 24, where it says a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. According to Leviticus 12, typically a lamb and a turtle dove were the appropriate sacrifices. Those made up the burnt and the sin offerings respectively, which had to be given if Mary was going to be purified. Uh, But if a person couldn't pay for a lamb, then one bird for the burnt offering, one bird for the sin offering were totally acceptable. So a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons were acceptable sacrifices for people who didn't have the wealth or the resources to offer a more expensive sacrifice like a lamb. So this purification is the first reason that these guys are in the temple in Jerusalem on this particular day. The second explicit ceremony is the presentation of the newborn Jesus to the Lord. We read, They brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Here, Mary and Joseph are presenting their baby to God according to the law. It states in Exodus 13 that every firstborn male must be presented to God. So the second reason that they are in the temple in Jerusalem on that day is to present Jesus to God according to the law. They are law keepers. And the third but implied ceremony is the dedication of Jesus to serve God. You see, the baby was brought to the temple in Jerusalem for presentation, which was entirely unnecessary. The fact that they traveled all the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, from Bethlehem, when they did not need to, suggests that they were also there 
to dedicate him for the service, for the work of the Lord, much like the baby Samuel was dedicated for the service of the Lord in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. So these verses give us this picture of Mary and Joseph as these righteous, faithful, God-fearing law keepers. But these verses also situate our text. They tell us why they are in Jerusalem. Why they are in the temple. Because they are law keepers, they are in the temple that day. And it's important that they are in the temple because that is where God has sovereignly ordained for them to encounter these two people who are waiting on God to provide the the Messiah. And through the words of these people, uh, we will learn much about Jesus as Savior. So we're introduced to Simeon and Anna in this text. And as we track what Simeon and Anna have to say about Jesus, we're going to learn a lot about Jesus as our Savior. We're introduced to Simeon in verses 25 and 26 where we realize that though we don't know much about him biographically, we still learn a lot about him. Let's get verses 25 and 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So Luke doesn't give us a lot of biographical information about Simeon. Uh, We can sort of assume that maybe because he wasn't presented to us or introduced to us as a priest or a prophet that he would have been a common man, a lay person, but really, that would just be an educated guess. Uh, We know he's from Jerusalem. We don't know anything about how old he is, what his family's like, any sort of background details or life statistics, because Luke is far more concerned with telling us about his spiritual condition. And here's how Luke describes Simeon. He's righteous and he's devout. Now this is language of law-keeping. This man is obedient to the Lord, much like Mary and Joseph. The text tells us that Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Not only is he a righteous law keeper, he is someone who is waiting and hoping for the Lord to save the people. The text tells us that the Holy Spirit is upon him. Not only is he this righteous law keeper, not only is he waiting with great hope on the Lord, but the Holy Spirit, he's received the special anointing of the Holy Spirit. And as we've mentioned several times already since we started this series in the book of Luke, the Holy Spirit's work is a major theme throughout this Gospel. And we will see that the Holy Spirit is already revealing special things to Simeon so that the nature of of Jesus Christ as our Savior becomes increasingly clear to us. In fact, in verses 26-28, to We see that the Holy Spirit has spoken to Simeon in this unique way. He's already orchestrating these miraculous events. Telling him, before you die, you will see the Lord's Christ. The Messiah. And according to God's just miraculous work and all of His power, all of His wisdom, Simeon walks into the temple complex that day, full of the Holy Spirit, He sees Mary and Joseph with their baby Jesus walking through the complex. By God's grace, he recognizes the baby as the Messiah. He runs over, he scoops him up, and he starts to bless God. So that's Simeon. 
And as we look carefully at the words of this righteous, Spirit-filled, hope-filled man, we're going to see this amazing description of Jesus Christ as our Savior. So Luke is continuing to color in this picture of Jesus for us. We learn that Jesus, first of all, is the one who brings consolation to Israel. This consolation for which Simeon is waiting. Look at verse 25 again. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Consolation is a word that means comfort. It means uh, lifting up of another spirit. It means relief from pain. It means encouragement. The phrase consolation of Israel refers to this expectation, this anticipation, this hope that God would deliver His people, that He would provide saving comfort for Israel. It's a phrase concerned with messianic salvation. Salvation that the Messiah would provide. This is language from the prophet Isaiah who in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13 just exclaims, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on His afflicted. Simeon's waiting for this God of comfort and this God of consolation to provide the ultimate comfort, the ultimate consolation for His people. He is waiting for Jesus, the Messiah. The consolation of Israel is a description of Jesus' work. Jesus brings about consolation, comfort for Israel. He is their comforter. What a description. Luke, as he's crafting this beautiful window of Jesus Christ, is so just makes sure that he's describing Jesus with fullness, with vibrancy. So let's recognize that Jesus' identity as Savior, even for us, includes this nuance of Him being our great comforter. He's the one who ushers in comfort for His people. And that's important for us to hear today because like Israel, you and I are natural enemies of God. We are people who are born dead in our sin. We are in desperate need of the saving comfort of Jesus Christ. So the passage reveals Jesus as the Savior who comforts, who consoles the desperate, the needy, the sinful, just like you and I. So this is great news for us. Well, Simeon's blessing continues, and as we just look at these words, he's going to continue to unpack the truth that Jesus is this long-awaited Savior. Get verses 27 to 32. 27 to 32. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. After scooping up little 40-day-old baby Jesus uh, in the temple, Simeon just begins to bless God, as we've mentioned, saying he can now die because God has been a faithful promise keeper. 
He kept His Word to Simeon. Simeon's eyes have landed on the Savior. He is looking at Israel's consolation in the flesh. So he just bursts into this hymn of joy and hope and worship. But this is also a hymn that is so revealing. Because seeing Jesus is directly connected to seeing salvation itself. These words are revealing. Jesus is so much the source of our salvation. So much so that the way Luke writes the account, Jesus is presented to us as the personification of salvation. Look at verse 30. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Meaning looking at the baby Jesus was equated with seeing the salvation that God would provide for His people. It's just a huge statement with eternal ramifications. The eternal destiny of all men and women depends wholly on Jesus Christ. Please don't pass over the weightiness of that statement this morning. I know many of you here have heard that many times over. Hear it with fresh ears. Let the power of it just marinate your soul this morning. Apart from Jesus, there is no salvation. Apart from Jesus, we are all lost. According to the Bible, apart from Jesus, we will all receive the just punishment for our sin and our rebellion, but glory be to God who sent His Son to save. Guys, Luke wants us to know that salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. He wants us to have a full understanding that Jesus is our Savior. Well, The text says in verse 31 that Jesus is the Savior that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. And even just adding that little line here, it's a message of hope for all of us. All peoples. Jesus is born uh, and salvation is available to everyone who calls upon Him as Lord. Both Jew, both Gentile, no matter what your background, what, what your race, your ethnicity, wherever you're from. And that fact that Jesus, anyone who calls on Jesus uh, as Lord receives the forgiveness and the salvation that only He can provide, that truth is fleshed out further in this description of Jesus as Savior. God's salvation, salvation provided through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, we read, is not only cons- he's not only consolation and comfort to the people, it says he's also light to the Gentiles, as we read in verse 32. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ is salvation that will bring revelatory light to the darkness of the Gentile world. Light is this common description of Jesus and his work on earth. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew quotes Isaiah. And in that quote, in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 16, we read that in Jesus, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those in the region of shadow and in death, on them a light has dawned. Take in just the powerful description of Jesus Christ as word and light in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. 
He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him, but to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to be called children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is the light to those who receive Him and believe on His name, and those people are rescued, forgiven, welcomed into the fold of God as His children. Listen to John chapter 12, verses 44-46, to where Jesus will tell us His whole purpose for coming in the first place. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me, believes not in Me, but in Him who sent Me. And whoever sees Me, sees Him who sent Me, Verse 46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in Me may not remain in darkness. Jesus is the One who can illuminate the dark places, the darkness in the Gentile world. He can allow blind men to see. Jesus, Jesus alone can do these things. And Simeon, as he's holding this little baby in the temple, he just declares that these Gentiles, this world full of them that are lost in the darkness of their own sin, are receiving a light in this baby Jesus Christ. He's the one who will lead people through the darkness into the light of gospel understanding, into forgiveness, into eternal relationship with God, and into adoption as sons and daughters. So Christians in the room, Those of you who sit here today and you have placed faith in Jesus, you have confessed Him as Lord, understand that this work of illuminating the darkness of your heart has already been done by God for you. So guys, you can respond to a text like this by gazing at Jesus and worshiping God and thanking Him for the work that He's done in your heart. For those of you that don't know Jesus as your Lord, who have never made that decision before, who have never trusted in Him as your perfect sacrifice, guys, my prayer this morning is that God would lead you out of the darkness to see Jesus Christ as light, as your Savior, that you would repent of your sins, confess Him as Lord, spend eternity with Him. So we learn that Jesus, as our Savior, is the consolation, the comfort for His people. We learn that He is the light for the Gentiles. But we're also going to learn that as Savior, Jesus is glory for Israel. And this is just yet another nuance of this picture of Jesus as Messiah that Luke is creating. We're still still learning the many facets and contours of who He is as our, our, our Messiah and our Savior. And in constructing the window, he's still filling in the colors, so to speak, for us. So we learned that he is glory for the people of Israel. And uh, the people through whom God provided this light, this Savior, is Israel. And as the people through whom the world is going to be saved, that is glory for them. When God's light comes through Israel, salvation of the world comes through Israel. That's what makes Israel special. It is a glory to them. So according to Simeon's prophecy, we're learning all kinds of things about Jesus Christ as our Savior. We learn He's our comfort. He's the consolation. We learn He is salvation personified. We learn He is light to the darkness of the Gentile world. We learn He is glory to Israel. And all of this is happening in in real historical place 
in the temple in Jerusalem. And here's Mary and Joseph. This stranger runs up to them, grabs their baby, starts saying all of these things. These people who have already encountered angels and have already heard prophecies, and they respond to these Spirit-filled words, and they're just standing in awe of what they're hearing. Verse 33 says, And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And I, told, I completely understand that took place in a specific historical moment, and parallels can't necessarily uh, be drawn to where we are here today in terms of applying how they responded then to how we should respond now, but I do think it is appropriate for each of us as we hear this, just full, the fullness of this description of Jesus Christ, to marvel and to stand awestruck before our God the way Mary and Joseph did that day in the temple. So let me ask you, as you read through these uh, verses and you see the, just the picture of Jesus beginning to fill out, are you standing awestruck before the Lord? Are you marveling at Jesus Christ this wonderful Savior who comforts and consoles and sheds light and provides glory. Are you marveling in His presence? Well, if you can believe it, Luke's actually not done telling us about Jesus as our Savior. You see, in addition to Simeon running up to the family in the temple that day, uh, these guys, as they're just trying to carry, keep the law, carry out these different sacrifices and offerings, uh, they encounter another Spirit-filled person. Her name is Anna. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We know Anna was a prophetess. She was a godly woman. We know she was Jew. It's a, a, a Jew. It says she was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We know she was older. She was a widow. She was married seven years as a young woman. Her husband died, and presumably she never remarried. And now she's an old woman, loving the Lord, like, like Simeon. Very righteous lawkeeper, always in the temple, praying, fasting, worshiping. And we don't learn much from Anna, but we do know that day she encountered Jesus Christ in the temple. Get verse 38. Coming up at that very hour. It means the hour when Mary and Joseph arrived at the temple with the baby Jesus. And she must have recognized Him as Lord because her response is thanksgiving and then to go run and tell all the other people in the temple who are also waiting for the consolation of Israel to, to, to just proclaim thanksgiving to God for this baby and then to tell others who He is. So Luke is constructing this window of Jesus' life. We see this robust picture of Him as Savior. And Anne is going to show us that He is this baby. He is this person. He is this Messiah who is worthy of worship and thanksgiving and exaltation. It's an important picture for us to look at today. Because Jesus isn't just the Messiah for Luke. He isn't just the Messiah for Simeon or Anna or Joseph or Mary. He isn't just the Messiah for first century Jews 
or for Gentiles living in the Roman world. He isn't just the Messiah for Theophilus, this guy that is Luke's benefactor as he's writing this Gospel. He is the Messiah, the Savior for you and for me. That's why He came. He came to save sinners like us. That those enslaved in the darkness of their own sin might be freed to walk in the light of Jesus Christ. That those of you struggling in the hopelessness uh, of life and just uh, afflicted with despair today might find comfort and consolation in your Savior Jesus Christ. He came as our gift. He came as our salvation. Jesus Christ is the Savior. And as Luke continues to piece together this narrative, we have this amazing picture of Jesus as our Savior. Um, But what we find about the nature of His ministry is not necessarily going to be what we expect. All right. (laughs) Don't let that distract you. Verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So after blessing Mary and Joseph in the temple, he turn, Simeon turns his attention to uh, Mary and he gives us these two images of Jesus' ministry, what that ministry will bring about here on earth. We see those two images in verse 34. The first is that He's appointed for the rise and for the fall of many in Israel. The second is that He will be a sign to be opposed. First, we read that Jesus is appointed for uh, this determining work in Israel. Look at verse 34 again. Verse 34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. By fall, Simeon means judgment for the prideful rejectors of Jesus Christ. By rising, he's referencing salvation for the faithful. So Jesus is appointed that some might fall into just condemnation, and Jesus is appointed that some might rise to eternal life. And that is a teaching that is so consistent throughout all of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 14 and 15, this wonderful passage looking forward to Jesus that Peter will reference in, the, in, in his letter of 1 Peter, connecting to Jesus Christ, has this to say, revealing Jesus to be a stumbling stone to some. It says, "...and He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling." to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Romans chapter 9, verses 30-33, to Paul explains that Gentiles have received Jesus by faith. They've received righteousness now by faith. While some Jews have sought out righteousness apart from Jesus Christ through keeping the law through their own works, through their own good works. They're trying to achieve righteousness. And listen to the description of what we see here. Romans chapter 9, verses 30-33. to 
What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Hear this. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. In unbelief, some men and women who don't have eyes to see Jesus as Lord will seek righteousness apart from Him and they will stumble over Him and be lost. To these people, Jesus is someone that they will trip over. Yet to others, Jesus is the cornerstone. Isaiah 28.16 Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the One who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men, uh, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In the construction of ancient buildings, a cornerstone was laid, and that stone served as the foundation upon which the whole structure was built. Structural integrity depended upon the cornerstone. If the cornerstone was shaky or wobbly or weak or frail or unreliable, the whole structure would fall over and be unstable. Yet if the cornerstone was solid and true, the structure would be stable. Those who look upon Jesus and see His saving work and confess Him as Lord are building their lives on a sure foundation. A solid foundation. He is a movable and strong cornerstone that will result in your forgiveness and will result in eternal life for you. So some will stumble over Him. Others' lives will be built upon Him. Those who reject Jesus will fall with the condemned. Those who receive Him will rise with the redeemed. Do you see? Jesus' ministry is going to cause division. We see even in Israel, the text says, this is going to happen. Israel is going to be divided over Jesus Christ. Which gives us this picture of the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom realities are being communicated to us here. Uh, people will be split into two groups over Jesus Christ. How an individual responds to Jesus is going to make all of the difference. There are only two options. Either you reject, you stumble, and you fall, or you receive, you rise, and you are redeemed. We learn that all of this takes place, as the text says, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now the purpose of this sort of divisive nature of uh, Jesus' ministry is so that the, heart, the thoughts of the heart might be revealed. Um, where your heart is before God will be made clear by how you respond to Jesus Christ. And how you respond to Jesus Christ and to nothing else. Jesus brings out what is really in the heart of people. He sheds light and exposes the rejectors. 
He sheds light and illuminates those who would have faith by grace. So since this is the reality of things, of what his ministry is going to be like, of how people will respond to Jesus, how that's been made clear to us, it's no surprise to us that Jesus is going to experience opposition and his ministry, his time on earth, is going to be full of suffering and rejection. Which brings us to this second image in verse 34. Which says he will be a sign that is opposed. Now this is the first glimpse that we have in Luke's Gospel that Jesus' time on earth, His mission to come to save sinners, is going to bring about opposition for Him and that He is going to have to suffer if He's actually going to save anybody. We are learning here, already in chapter 2, when Jesus is just a baby, uh, that if, if this mission to save sinners is going to happen, Jesus will not walk this road of least resistance. In fact, neither will those who love Him, including Mary. Look at verse 35. Chapter 2, verse 35. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon's prophecy says that Mary's soul will be pierced. It's interesting, huh? That the nature of Jesus' ministry, the opposition that will come against Him, the, just the divisiveness of how He's going to cause each of us to have to decide what we're going to do with Jesus, that's going to pierce Mary's soul. That is a violent image, isn't it? Here, they are not holding back here. The word for sword is referencing this large, broad, heavy, two-edged sword just slashing through Mary's soul. Some think it's a a reference to just the pain and the anguish and the sorrow that she is going to experience as she sees her son hanging on a cross. Other people think it's a reference to her having to come up against that hard decision that each of us will have to come up against in life, that experience when we just have to figure out, what am I going to do with Jesus? Am I going to reject? Am I going to receive? Either way, however you interpret the text, it is clear that Jesus' time on earth is going to cause her pain. Mary will suffer as well because of what this mission as Him as Savior is going to include. Already in chapter 2, Luke, Luke's image of what Jesus is here to do is not going to change from the first word to the last word. Already, He's foreshadowing what is going to come. This won't be an easy road for Him. He's going to be opposed and rejected and He's going to suffer. We know that. But it also means that those closest to him, like Mary, will also suffer. Though it might be as temporary as that might be. So Jesus is our great Savior. And as our great Savior, his ministry will divide. And since Jesus' ministry will divide, all people must respond to Jesus. The truth of these verses is that both Jew and Gentile, some will be saved, some will be crushed. But how they respond to this boy, Jesus Christ, is going to determine which. Every human, including you today, will have to deal with Jesus. There's no way around it. There's no neutral ground. There is no neutrality in this. Whether you like it or not, Jesus demands a response from you 
You either reject Him or you receive Him. So how will you respond to the Savior? For those of you who are unsure where you stand with God, the first step is to acknowledge your sin, which is so despicable before Him, which is so offensive to Him, which disqualifies you from relationship with Him. And to look on Jesus as your Savior and as your light who lived this perfect life and despite His perfection, willingly hung on a cross as your sacrifice, paying the penalty for your sin. Looking at Jesus, understanding all of that, and then saying, yes, Lord, I confess You as God. Save me. That is the first step. And some of you maybe. The Holy Spirit might be working in your heart even now to make that decision. How will you respond to the Savior? And for those of you who already know Jesus and have relationship with Him, that question, how will you respond to the Savior, is still relevant for you. Mary and Joseph had the Savior in their midst and they responded with righteous, law-keeping obedience and with this continual wonder and awe at who He was. Simeon responds to seeing Jesus and he just identifies Him immediately as the Savior and just just bursts into this song, this hymn of joy and hope and worship. Anna identifies uh, Jesus as the Savior and she just abounds in thanksgiving and just starts telling everybody. It's just bubbling out. She can't stop telling people who Jesus is. When righteous people encounter Jesus... They respond by identifying Him as the Savior and by honoring God and worshiping the Lord. How will you respond to Jesus? Luke has gone to great lengths to give us this amazing picture of Jesus Christ as our Savior. The question you must answer today as you gaze upon Luke's stained glass masterpiece in all of its fullness with its rich colors and intricate details, as you behold the fullness of Jesus Christ as your consolation, as your comfort, as your light, as Israel's glorious salvation personified, is how will you respond to the Savior? So how will you respond to the Savior? How will you respond to the Savior? Please pray with me. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for revealing to us the identity of Your Son. I pray, Father, that we would look upon the many details that have been provided for us. And I pray that we would just look at Your Son, Jesus, And just honor Him and worship Him and praise Him as the Savior who's done for us what no one else could. Father, I pray now You'd be softening hearts, that You'd be providing sight to the blind, that the darkness in our souls and in our minds and our hearts would just give way to the light of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in one voice, every person here would confess Your Son as Lord We pray that You would do that work in us so that we might honor You now. Take glory from our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.